Hello and welcome once again to the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast. As always, I'm your host, Steve Smith. This is episode number 12. A quick intro into episode number 12, what we'll be talking about and, and what you'll be listening to on this episode. We'll start off with walking the fairways, as we always do, which is looking at what's going on golf courses around Australia and throughout, and also going to catch up with friend of the podcast, Ross Flanagan from Melbourne. Now, Ross is from, you might have known from the My Love of Golf podcast, the Mental Mastery podcast, and Golf Rules Questions podcast. He is uh, a very well-versed podcaster, and uh, we love Ross on the show. Become good friends with Roscoe, and uh, we're going to chat about wedgeology, a little bit about some clubs today, and also a current topic of conversation in New South Wales and particularly Sydney, but across in the broader scene of golf and public golf, going to talk about more park golf course and some of the public pressure that's happening on golf on public land. So a bit to talk about there with Roscoe, which we'll do later on in the podcast. And one more thing I'd like to add is that after last episode of the podcast being number 11, I did the story on Dan Souter had a great response from everyone out there listening, loved the historical segment of Dan Suda, loved listening a lot about, you know, the history in Australia and sort of some of the personalities that got golf going in this country. And Dan Suda was one of them and had some great com- great uh, conversations with some people about it, which is really, 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 really interesting. And also just a quick shout out to uh, Adrian Logue from the Good Good Golf podcast. Adrian made mention of, uh, of my story and and uh, of Dan Suter and, and the segment that was in the last podcast episode and I really appreciated that them reaching out and Adrian mentioning it out to their audience and uh, got a few more listens from that so anyone listening from the good good golf podcast the regulars of that listening to mine I uh, appreciate you coming over and listening to some of my episodes and to my listeners go over if you haven't done it before and listen to Adrian and Rod Morrie uh, talk and discuss with many and very different guests and also in their own conversations and and topical um, points in golf at the moment on the Good Good Golf podcast. So you can search for that on all your favourite podcast platforms. But uh, the Good Good Golf podcast is a great one to listen to, very philosophical and talking about current trends. And and very you can learn a lot of things in uh, the commentary that goes on in there as well with some of their wonderful guests. So thanks to those guys. And if you haven't listened to them, get over there and listen to the Good Good Golf podcast. Let's get stuck into Walking the Fairways. Walking the Fairways, December 20, 2020. We'll start off at the top of Walking the Fairways with a little bit of weather in that La Nina, as I've mentioned in the past, is really starting to hit its straps on the east coast of Australia. And we'll start off with some information that I'm hearing it coming out of Coolangatta Tweed Heads Golf Club, right up in the in the border area. Oh, it's actually a tweed, so on the New South Wales side of the Queensland-New South Wales border is uh, Coolangatta Tweed Heads Golf Club. And we've just this week gone by, they've been smashed with so much rain. The southeast of Queensland, northern, northern east parts of New South Wales has been hammered by just intense rainfall. And to the point where Tweed was about to have their pro-am and they've got an open tournament. Everything was happening on course in this week and the weekends, the weekends leading up. 
and they went underwater with so much rain. And it was a combination of heavy rain and heavy rain upstream because they're down on the coast, they're near the mouth of the Tweed River, but they're also on the bank of the Tweed River. And with that heavy rainfall that was happening up in the higher grounds where they are, high tide levels, um, unusually high tides, uh, was meaning that there was a backup of water. The Tweed River burst its banks and inundated the river course. As you can imagine, it's a 36-hole facility. They have the river course and the west course, and the river course did go underwater, so they had to cancel their events. And and I'm just going to throw some numbers out there for you. Those of you that, that work on golf courses or you, you follow the weather a little bit if you're avid golfers and you love to understand some of these things that are going on with the weather, with rainfall, th- these are some of the numbers. So the week of last week, uh, with the rainfall, they had in excess of 500 millimetres of rain in, in seven days, so half a metre. Now, they had almost a third of the club's annual rainfall. That's that half a metre. It was, it was nearly a third of the club's annual rainfall in a week. That's their annual rainfall average. So they averaged 1,665 millimetres on that golf course site per year. They've had almost a third in seven days which is just to give you a picture of how much rain they've had. So, And this goes across all of northeastern um, New South Wales along the coast there and southeastern Queensland have just been hammered. I haven't had too much time to look at it because it's all fresh information um, to see what other courses are dealing with. But no doubt every course up there is being poleaxed by all this weather. And I've seen some videos uh, through social media as well of people posting some of the rainfalls that are happening up there. It's it's full on. And um, this isn't a cyclone or anything. This is a rain event. Um, lots of fronts, lots of low pressures, an East Coast low pressure system that um, basically planted itself up there and was just a massive deluge. On one of the days in a 12-hour period overnight, this will give you an idea, they had 250 mil of rainfall in 12 hours. Hard to get your head around um, that that much rain has fallen in a 12-hour period up there. Now, year to date, they they receive they've received this last year in 2020 20 just over 2180 millimeters basically and last year in 2019 they received less than half so we know last year was extremely dry lots of bushfires around the country and an exceptionally dry uh, year at 962 mil they had this year the year's not quite over we've got a couple of weeks left in december but they've had more than double and, and it's over their average, which is 1,665 mil. So that's just some of the numbers, but Tweed's gone under. And, and no doubt, like I said, there's a few other golf courses up there that we'll be dealing with, and quite a lot, we'll be dealing with similar situations. Uh, and I know the Glades is one, for example. I've spoken to Glenn, Superintendent Glenn Gibson-Smith in the past about how quickly the Glades can go under as well. Uh, they've got a pretty good water pumping infrastructure system to help drain some of those areas of the, of the golf course. But... Most of the courses up there, the Gold Coast, um, those sorts of areas in northern New South Wales, they've they've been hammered. So um, some places might have cancelled golf, um, but it just gives you an idea of this La Nina starting to really fire up and and uh, show us what it's made of this year. That's for sure at Tweed. So that's some of the most recent stuff happening just in the last few days. Moving on, and we'll go straight down to Tasmania to the Bugle Run. Now, this is the short course at Barn Bugle in Tasmania, the, the wonderful 36-hole facility, which has now moved out to a 40-golf-hole facility in total with three golf courses. Uh, the two 18-hole courses, uh, sorry, 
What am I talking about? It's a 42-hole facility. You've got Barn Bugle Dunes at 18 holes. You have a Lost Farm at 20 holes. And now we've got the Bugle Run short course at 14 holes. Now, the Bugle Run has set an opening date in January of 2021. So that's only a matter of weeks, guys. So everything, if it's all moving to plan down there as they hope, we've got the Bugle Run short course opening up early next year. Now, there's a funny thing. There's a little bit of a story about the uh, the Bugle Run, and I'll just tell you what I've heard and what I've read about uh, some of the <laughs> little bits of background with how the Bugle Run came to be. Listen to this. This is a great little story. Now, it literally happened by accident that the Bugle Run was, I suppose, thought about. It's a little bit interesting. So they had a, a, a small burn-off happening on some of the vegetation as they, as they do on a lot of these golf courses. You you do a controlled burn to manage the vegetation and whatnot uh, around and, and in throughout golf courses and the land that they, are, they occupy on as part of the natural um, best processes and best practices to manage the vegetation throughout as time goes on. And they had a small burn off happening on course on one of the sandy ridges internally of the Lost Farm course last uh, last September. And it did get a little bit out of hand. So they had a little bit more area burnt and a little bit more, I suppose, more vegetation burnt than what they had in mind. Nothing too dangerous, but it was a little bit more than originally had planned. Now, owner Richard Sattler had, had gone up to inspect what was perceived to be that there could be more damage than than what was the original plan. And when he got up there, he couldn't believe what you were able to see and, and obviously what that vegetation was was sort of over the top of. So um, he's had a look at it. The following week, as the story goes, made a phone call to Cora Crenshaw and they've had a look at some images and things that were um, that have been taken of the area and they decided before too long they were going to look at what they could do with this with this space so last december being that of 2019 bill core turned up on site they did some rough routing and worked out they could get a 14 hole short golf course on in that space so they have come up with this is how it came to be with the bugle run now the idea and this is quoted from 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 superintendent Phil Hill of Barn Bugle. Now it's got he's he's quoted it here as saying it's going to be a fun layout with some great green complexes and bunkering that golfers of all abilities can enjoy, and even add to the end of the day's play on either of the other two courses. So this is something that you might not necessarily travel solely to Barn Bugle to play the short course, but being that you can play one of the courses in the morning, for example. And then in the afternoon, you might sort of go back and have lunch or something after your round. And then you might go, look, let's go out for an hour and a half, a couple of hours, and we'll just go out quickly play the play the short course, something like that. So that's the idea is that you can you can go out there and add it to your, I suppose, the destination that is Barn Bugle, add it to the fun that you're going to have around Barn Bugle and experience something else. So it's now become a three golf course complex. And uh, and I mentioned this past that, that this is how uh, – this is the short course, the bugle run, and how it was going to be integrated into the facility. So this is the idea. You'll be able to add it to your to your to your day's play. A little bit more golf to add in. It's like one and a half golf courses you might be able to play in a day now. Um, and and super Phil Hill goes on to sort of saying that the hydro seeding of the fescue started sort of mid-April earlier this year, and it was completed by the end of June. So and that allowed them to get a full spring growing of the fescue, um, and they're looking for that opening in late January. 
as uh, at the start of early next year. So we're looking to see how this is received when it's open. I think it'll be really enjoyable. And obviously we go on, I haven't been to Barn Bugle myself, but we talk about what we've heard, what we've read, what we've seen from those that have been there and uh, those that have seen it. You might know someone who's played it, you might have played it yourself, but this is an addition to Barn Bugle, which really, really looks like a, a fun addition to the whole facility and the whole, um, basically the whole destination that is Barn Bugle. So looking forward to it. Now I'm going to add a footnote into that story. I've recently booked a trip with my brother and some friends to go down to Barn Bugle in, uh, in next year. Now we're looking at uh, heading down there sometime, I think it is around March, and uh, I am i never thought I would be able to get down there to visit Barn Bugle. So plans are that we're going to get down there sometime in March to, um, to play and stay down there. And I'm really, really excited to experience the whole facility, um, what it is, where it's, what it's become. And uh, I suppose it's a bit of a holy grail destination and certainly a bucket list destination for a lot of people. So uh, never thought I'd be able to do it. Really excited about it. And um, I'll be able to give you some real, real good insight, hopefully, uh, from my experience, all things being equal, that we can get down there and, and play golf and enjoy it. In, at that time of the year. So, um, yeah, there's a little footnote for it. I'm going to experience it myself for the first time. Really excited and uh, looking forward to it. Moving on a little bit, and I'll start off with this one by saying if there's anyone out there that knows me and has ever asked me about the best grass I believe there is for fairways, I'll always say it's Santa Ana Cooch. Now, why? Well, probably mostly because of my experience in greenkeeping and how I think it delivers such a great surface and how you manage that grass and give and deliver such a what I think is such a great surface. Now, I sort of think my belief is that it gives an incredibly tight surface, a uniform playing surface. I really love what you can deliver. And like all cooch, it has a great heat tolerance. And it still plays well when it's dormant in winter if it's used in cool climate regions and uh, and it has such a great tolerance drought tolerance for for low water use uh, where you can still sort of just keep it alive if it's a really hot year and dry year and you need to conserve water and that's from a maintenance perspective uh, when you've got a great year of water you've got water at your disposal as well to, to, to sort of smooth out the hiccups in heat throughout a summer period for example um, you can really deliver a sensational surface but it's what it does around the edges when life's a little bit hard maintaining a fairway uh, with water, with temperature, be it cool, you know, winter. So I used it uh, at Katoomba Golf Course in the Blue Mountains. Anywhere we did works on our fairways, we put Santa Ana down because we didn't have water to deliver onto those fairways and, and manage uh, the fairways with irrigation uh, through the summer period. So if it got dry, it got dry, and that was life. But what we lo- what I loved is that Santa Ana would – would survive. It would really shut itself down to a minimal water use and just hang on so well. And you'd still have a surface that was really switching itself off to conserve energy, but it was still like carpet. So it wasn't actively growing, but there was such a good tight, tight sort of uniform playing surface that it required minimal work. Uh, and you knew that it was going to hang on. Eventually, you'd get a storm or eventually it'd start to cool down and you get the odd shower as the season would change and it would just open and wake itself back up. A wonderful grass that could just manage itself so well. And uh, it needs a little bit of work in maintenance. It needs to be 
the thatch removed and to be thinned out regularly uh, every sort of growing season, which is a little bit more than other cooch grasses. But overall, the pluses that it gives when when life's tough maintaining a golf course, I think you can't beat Santa Ana. And, and its surface to play on, is it can be quite exceptional. Where am I going with this, talking about Santa Ana? Well, I'm going to Royal Canberra Golf Club down in the ACT. Royal Canberra has just found out how good Santa Ana is. They've just found out. And they've decided to use it on their on one of their fairways in a bit of a trial. Yes, Look, after a rigorous research period, research period last year, they had Dr. Fred Yelverton from North Carolina State University from the States, and they had Bruce McPhee from the AGCSA Tech, which is the research and uh, technical side of, of, of the Australian Greenkeeping Associations. Uh, what's at your fingertips? They do a lot of the research for Australian golf courses and and for greenkeeping, and it's a, it's a resource that that uh, greenkeepers and superintendents have at their fingertips that they can talk to these guys and see what they've done. So it's it's sort of across the board for Australia. We've got our own research in this country that will tell us what works and doesn't work and, and they look into chemical use and, and other things and other all sorts of different management tools to maintain turf in Australia, whether it be water use and, and chemical use and, and natural products to use for management of, fun, of fungus and, and insects, insect control, pest control, all those sorts of things are done through the AGCSA Tech as well. So it's great to have that local knowledge uh, and research done in this country, which is honestly, that sort of stuff is priceless as well. Now, those two guys had done this research and they carried out their own independent audits at Royal Canberra's on their bent grass fairways because with the OCM rebuild, OCCM at the time, I think it was, the rebuild and redesign of, of Royal Canberra, much fanfare, architectural um, work done and changes to the golf course. But also part of that was they changed their fairways to bent grass. And I, for one, was really surprised that the club wanted to go down the path of having bent grass fairways. Sounds amazing. Who wouldn't want green-like surfaces on your fairways. But knowing how difficult bent grass is to manage on a golf green, uh, I found it almost, now look, I'm going to say it, and I'm not here to have a go at anyone, uh, but I found it laughable because managing bent grass, now Canberra is a cool climate area, but it has a very hot summer, uh, just has a longer sort of, I suppose, a cooler period than because it's slightly elevated. It's down in the snowy mountains in Australia. And it's, it doesn't have the, the the short winter period that, say, Sydney has, for example, or even, even Melbourne because it's at altitude. It gets a cool air coming off the mountains, off the snow-capped mountains. They have a nice, really cold winter, a bit like the Blue Mountains where I used to work in, in uh, just west of Sydney at Katoomba Golf Club. So where I worked at Katoomba, I would have said it was probably a relatively similar climate to that of, of Canberra and the ACT. And when the, I heard they had bent grass, I also know that Canberra has a very hot, dry summer of 40-plus degrees, which we don't quite get that high at Katoomba. And to put bent grass down, I felt, and I say it was laughable, I probably felt it was going to be a little bit too hard to try and manage, and it turns out it was. They had a lot of problems dealing with that grass, and, and we're talking sort of disease control, which is one of the biggest things, um, over such a big space. Of, of fairways you, you're talking hectares of space 
like you know probably pushing i don't know maybe something around 15 hectares i'm going to guess of fairways it's it's a very large space to have bent grass on and to try and manage and they struggle big time and i mean huge and it's very well known in the industry that they did and certainly if you're a member down there or a golfer that had frequented royal Canberra, you would have known that they struggled it was obvious in the in the surface that they were struggling to manage it and it just wasn't going to work in my opinion in summer it turns out it didn't so like i said dr fred yelvert and bruce mcphee had done their audits on the bent grass fairways and they both came back from their independent audits recommending a warm season fairway grass conversion in order to provide a more sustainable and manageable surface moving forward for royal canberra and that that grass and, and variety of choice was centre and a cooch. Now, I could have told you that. You can just knock on my door and go, Steve, Royal Canberra struggling with Bent. What do you think? Well, I would have said Santa Ana. I would have said it 10 years ago. I would have said it 15 years ago. That's just through my experience. I, I, I just I don't understand why they had to go through all this to find out that Santa Ana was, a, was the grass of choice. But... They did and they have, and I'm glad that they've made that choice because it's going to be much better to manage, certainly from a water perspective, a surface delivering perspective from a maintenance point of view. Look, it's going to give them exactly what they want. So the bent struggled way too much, like I said, just those long periods of dry heat in Canberra and putting water out to keep it alive just raises the humidity in a microclimate around the surface of the leaf. You know, you're going to get all sorts of problems. So look, glad it's being done. Now, over the past few weeks at Royal Canberra, they've transformed their seventh hole, which was the, the hole nominated for this Santa Ana trial. Uh, and they converted all the tees, green surrounds, and fairways to Santa Ana Cooch. The trial is set to run for at least a couple of seasons, and that's going to give the members an opportunity to see what they think of the, the grass and, and what they can deliver, how the, the, the greenkeeping staff can deliver the surface with Santa Ana and how it's going to present and play at different times of the year, like I said, in a high altitude area and a cool climate area like Canberra, you get the heat of summer, but they also get the cold and dormancy uh, of winter, the extreme levels. It's not Queensland where you don't go down to 15 degrees. They they get snow on the odd occasion at Canberra. So a cooch grass in Canberra is, is going to go properly dormant. There will be no growth from that grass in winter, and the members will be able to see and experience just what that's like and also how much maintenance is going to be required in dethatching the surface through the growing season, getting it ready for spring and getting it ready for that summer growth. So there's a bit of work to the surface, but I think it's going to deliver a much better product. These experts think it's going to deliver a much better product. So it's going to be good to watch. And hopefully the members will come out the other side and work it out for themselves through their experience and say, this is the grass we need. That's what I'm hoping for from an ecological point of view as well to manage on a golf course. So they're going to have a couple of seasons for them to look at it, play it, see what they think. And if the trial is successful, the club will then vote on whether to proceed with a full grass conversion of all the fairways. So that's some interesting news coming out of Royal Canberra down there in the ACT, which is Canberra being the capital of Australia, if you're listening abroad. And uh, I'm really glad to hear that they're moving away from the proper headache that was bent grass on their fairways to go to a cooch grass. So um, and if you're listening abroad, Cooch being Santa Ana, as you would know, is a Bermuda grass variety. So that's Royal Canberra. Very good to see, in my opinion, and very excited about it. Moving to Victoria. Now, the championships are over at Commonwealth Golf Club in Melbourne, and work has quickly and swiftly commenced rebuilding their second tee. 
Now, the surface has been stripped off. The ground staff are really getting stuck into this design that they want to do on the second tee. And look, to be honest, I don't know too much of the detail about you know, what totally is going to be done there on the second tee. But if it's anything like some of the other work, it's it's vegetation management around the teeing area. It's the surface, bit of redesign, re-leveling, building maybe a bigger surface as well and integrating that into the local sort of lay of the land, which has been done so well. Harley Cruz is the architect involved down there at Commonwealth. And uh, last year I got to see some of the work that was being done to the 8th and 13th tees. I'll have to catch up with Harley again just to see some of the final ideas for this tee in particular. But more work is happening um, and they're getting on with it at Commonwealth Golf Club. So good to see that they're moving forward. And I, I think through all of this at Commonwealth, they're really starting to, to improve the place very, very well. And they've got a path forward and a vision. And uh, look, these guys are really working hard on getting there. So it's really good to see and we'll continue to watch from my, podca- my podcast. And if you're a member at uh, Commonwealth or if you're, if you're a visitor there and you play there on the odd occasion, You'll see what's going on, but these guys are working hard on bringing back Commonwealth to its former glory, and I say that in a positive way, being that they held the uh, the Aussie Open there in 1967. So, come back, Commonwealth! They're they're work they're walking the path, which is great to see. They're talking the talk, and now they're walking the walk. We'll head up to Queensland, and we go to Pelican Waters. Now, I don't, I've never played Pelican Waters, but some news that I've heard coming out of Pelican Waters is and. Like I said, it's not always about rebuilding a golf course. It's not always about digging up a green and rebuilding a green like recently done at St. Michael's or, you know, we talk about some of the tees happening at Commonwealth or a new short course at Barn Bugle. It's not always about that. It's the other things as well. And this is what I like to see courses doing and keep moving forward. It's, it doesn't need to be 10 steps. One step is a very, very good thing. And at Pelican Waters, they've recently installed some new cart paths around their 13th tee. Now, in terms of traffic, this is always a good addition from a maintenance perspective. And although concrete can be very expensive, it's by far and away the best long-term option uh, for maintenance, for long-term maintenance. It's it's the best option concrete. But it should be noted that, you know, you really need to make absolutely certain when you're putting in a concrete path that the path's being installed in the right location. I've seen paths that have gone down that uh, are probably a couple of metres sometimes of to one side of where they actually should be or they stop too early for example or they go too far too long and they should be pulled up you know it's it's it you've got to be careful with concrete paths they are a bit of an eyesore on a golf course but where you have high traffic and pelican waters as a resort golf course and you have lots of cart use you probably really need to have them there's no doubt about it uh, but you've got to make sure that they're in the right spot and, and having a consulting architect is always a good way of doing it if you've got a well-versed superintendent or or uh, club committee or board, you've just got to make sure you go about it and, and it's in the right spot. But Pelican Waters have thrown this in around their 13th tee, obviously an area that was identified that had to be redone, um, and, it's a, and it's a great addition and good news for Pelican Waters. So, you know, old paths, when they start to break apart or if they're, if they're dirt tracks and they become muddy, and certainly up there at Pelican Waters, we know that in heavy rain, they can be pretty muddy if they're sort of loose form paths and that sort of thing. So good news for Pelican Waters around their 13th tee for uh, for maintenance and traffic flow. Now, Caboolture Golf Club is located between Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast. It's not quite at the Sunshine Coast. It's further south, but between Brizzy and the Sunshine Coast. Now, they've just completed the installation of new concrete path to improve the wear area off the end of the 16th tee for them. Now, this hole was a bit of a short, it's a short par four dogleg right, and there's a nice water carry sort of on approach, on your approach shot to the green. So, 
But what it is, it's got a narrow shoot off the tee. And when you, with such a narrow exit from the tee on, from a playing and walking perspective and driving perspective in golf carts to the fairway, there's really only one line to walk. And after time, it becomes a dirt track. You know, grass isn't growing so well. If you get plenty of rain, it becomes muddy, slippery. All those sorts of things happen. It's unsightly for one. So they've put this new t- new concrete path in, a really good way to fix up this area. Again, it's about being in the right spot. So f- from their point of view, they've identified where they want it to go and they've put this, this new path in, which will deal with that dirt track, which will deal with the muddy problems after heavy rain up that way, which they do get certainly at this time of the year. And they've probably just had mountains of it like the rest of southeastern Queensland. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's dealt with that problem and it's... You know, it's a visual improvement as much as a practical improvement because those dirt tracks and mud tracks, well, sometimes they work on some courses. You know, in this particular spot, having seen some images of it, it, it was not very nice at all, pretty unsightly. And usually, like I said, they turn to mud and it doesn't give people a very good place to go. You know, no one likes walking in mud, let alone driving in mud with a cart if, you, uh, if you've taken a cart on your round. So kabulcha again, not another big change, but a small improvement and a little step along the way to making the golf course better in every way. And I, I love that about clubs, even uh, a place like Kabulcha. Going to talk a little bit about some architects now, and I'll go straight to OCM, which is Ogilvy, Cocking and Mead. And we know OCM have done some great work, particularly recently in Lonsdale uh, and at Sandy Links. So OCM, well, I'm sure we all know very well. And they have recently announced a bit of a double hit in some new new uh, design work that's happening. And one of those is being the consulting architects to Huntingdale Golf Club on the sand belt in Melbourne, which is, uh, which is fantastic, fantastic for them and fantastic for Huntingdale. Obviously, pr- in past years, Huntingdale was, was the host of what is now, I suppose, a, a lamented loss in the uh, Australian Masters. But these guys, OCM, have been announced as their consulting architects, and they're they're planning to start work on a course master plan early in the new year, and that's going to be a good thing for Huntingdale, and uh, you know, and and certainly for OCM. So I think both parties involved is going to be fantastic. Now I said it was a double hit, and they're also they've just been announced and appointed as course architects for Medina Country Club in the US on a redevelopment of the course number three that they have there. Now, to give you an idea, that course has hosted five major championships, including three US Opens and two US PGA Championships, along with one Ryder Cup back in 2012. Needless to say, I think we'll all be looking forward to seeing what OCM come up with for Medina, but very, very good to hear an Aussie design firm, architecture firm, doing some work over in the States. It's a big deal for OCM. And I think as an Aussie, it's a bit bit of a pride thing as well, to know that these guys have been selected to do a big, a big golf course in the states, they obviously know what OCM have been doing and what they've what they've been up to and what they're good at, and they've decided that uh, you know that they're the they're the guys for them. So one to watch on their 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 uh, championship golf course in number three. Really, really exciting news. We moved to Eleanor Country Club on Sydney's northern beaches, and looking at what's happening there and hearing that. They, they're going to be doing a new master plan redesign for the golf course, and they've engaged US-based architect Kyle Phillips to come up with options for the club and the membership to consider. Now, Kyle has done a large number of courses around the world, and, you know, I didn't know a lot about Kyle, 
but he's he's done quite a few things around the world, well versed in in golf course design, and uh, not just in the states where he's from, but also all over the planet. So really, really interesting to look into a little bit of and and a little bit of history, and I'll give you a little bit of an idea of some of the work that he's done. Now I don't know a lot of these ones, but I'll talk mention them now. And one of those is Yas Links Golf Club in Abu Dhabi, which I have heard of. Now he did that design uh, for that golf course. Another one, so, and that's a big golf course over there in the um, UAE, I think it is, Abu Dhabi. And he also did one called King's Barns, which you might have heard of in St. Andrews, Scotland. Now, it's only itself only about 15 minutes drive southeast of St. Andrews Links. Gives you an idea of its proximity to the old course, uh, but also that golfing mecca uh, back in St. Andrews. And the course in particular at King's Barnes, this is an idea of what Kyle's good at and what he's what he's been able to achieve. That golf course at King's Barnes was recently ranked by Golf Digest this year at number 27 in the world top 100 golf courses. Now, that is impressive. I don't care who you are. And like I said, I didn't know a lot about Kyle. And to start reading into some of these golf courses, I know a lot about Aussie golf courses, and that's what I do, as you know, in the podcast. And I, I look into a little bit of the international stuff, but it's not my big thing. But number 27 for Kings Barnes. Now, he also did a course seven years ago in South Korea, and it's called South Cape Owners Club, which this year has been ranked, again, by Golf Digest, at number nine in the world top 100 golf courses. So Kyle can design some golf courses of note. And if you look internationally, you'll see that. So interesting that uh, Eleonora have decided that he's the man for them. And this will be, Eleonora, if he gets the gig, will be Kyle's first work in Australia. So it's very exciting and interesting times ahead for to watch Eleonora and see how this comes about. Now, some of the stuff that I'm hearing about is that Eleonora are looking to use their land the best that they can in the best way possible. Now, what I read into that is that I know that there's some land outside the holes that they that they own inside the boundary of what the golf club owns, but it's not part of the golf holes that are currently used on site. And we know in my last podcast that I talked about Dan Suter, who designed the first nine holes at Eleonora um, back in the day, and uh, it sort of evolved over time. Jazz Scott did the second nine, and they've never really done a full golf course master plan to say, this is, we want to know how we can best utilize our site for full eight end holes inside these boundaries. They've never done that before. So it's, a, it's quite an old golf course and it's just sort of evolved into what is a beautiful golf course. But they want Kyle to look at all the land inside the boundary that they own and decide how they can best fit 18 golf holes and use the land the best that they can. So this could be very interesting to see what Kyle comes up with and what the club decide on. Um, we're hearing, I'm hearing a few little things about possibly a little short course as well, um, improvements to sort of a driving range areas and those sorts of things, uh, possibly some improvements to their water storage. So there's a few bits and pieces that uh, are very, very interesting and open for Kyle to look at, but that the fact that they want to, utilize the full property as best they can for 18 holes could be quite telling to what Kyle's going to come up with. So it's a very, very private golf club, a very exclusive golf club. I'm not sure how much information I'm going to be able to dig out about it, but whatever I can dig up, I will certainly be telling you about. But this is going to be one to watch. And they've been talking about this with Kyle for a little while now. They haven't come up with anything definite yet, nothing that the club's voted on that I'm aware of. 
but we will be watching this. I'll certainly be watching it um, with great interest, and I think a lot of people will be too because at Kyle Phillips to be the first, this is his first work in Australia. You never know what doors could open from him for him as well to do some more work. So one to watch. That's Eleonora and uh, on Sydney's Northern Beaches, guys. And that is a wrap of Walking the Fairways for this podcast. I hope you got some new information out about it, um, some interesting new stuff as always. And let's get stuck into the next segment with Ross Flanagan. All right, everyone. I just thought we would have to get back friend of the podcast. I could say friend of the podcast now in uh, Ross Flanagan, known famously for the My Love of Golf podcast. And uh, he's probably doing six or seven podcasts now since we last spoke. But Roscoe, welcome again to the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast. How are you going, mate? Steve, thank you as always for having me back. Yes, absolutely friend of the podcast. Uh, very good friend of the podcast. I'm proud to say so. Famous? No, not definitely not uh, on that front. But um, six or seven podcasts? No, I, I, <laughs> I'm str- struggling to struggling to, with uh, the balls of three of them up in the air. And uh, for anyone that does want to take the t- chance to listen, the Golf Rules Questions podcast with myself and the Golf Rules Questions guru Blakey, and uh, then the Mental Mastery Golf podcast with Jamie Glazier and My Love of Golf podcast with me. That's busy enough, mate. How are you? I'm well, mate, and, and absolutely anyone looking to uh, to learn more about the game and, and things that can help you along the way or, or interest, go and, and listen to any and all of those podcasts because you will find them fascinating, mate. But um, yes, I'm well, thank you, and very busy. I think we find our, ourselves both busy at the moment. I've got you on hands-free, of course, but you're on the road to uh, your other job, which <laughs> which is the Drum and Golf Store in, in Melbourne. Uh, that is the one that pays the bills, yes, uh, correctly, <laughs> The other ones don't pay the bills, but uh, they pay my they pay my mental uh, mental health, so uh, that's good. Yep, no, very, on, the, on the way into the city, mate. Very very good, mate. Very good. Well, thanks again for joining and taking the time to uh, to participate in discussion. And um, one look, I'll probably just start by and uh, my last podcast, I had uh, I did a segment on Aussie golf history, and it was on a a guy by the name of Dan Suter, who you being from Melbourne would know that um, he designed the famous Kingston Heath golf course. And um, look, uh, one of the things I've talked about golf equipment with you being a a drum and golf store owner. And I love to learn about this sort of stuff in the modern day, because there's so many things that are, are at your fingertips to pick from. And there's a lot of tech involved. And sometimes you try and find out just where to look, before you can look for what you what you want to look for and what's going to suit you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about wedges today. There's so many different things. And back in Dan Suter's day, for example, I think it was the Niblick, and I love some of these old names of, of the clubs. They didn't use numbers. They, they used names. Uh, the Niblick was, the, I think, the most lofted club in the bag. But I've seen images of those sorts of, of sticks, as it were, the hickories back then, and, and, the, and those types of club faces, and they were – sharpish edges and geez they must have been hard to play golf with let alone you know trying to hit a ball under some sort of control but I think about trying to play a bunker shot or out of the rough with some of those clubs and man they'd get tangled up in things and dig down and talk about skill those guys had it in spades. Uh, You're 100% correct when you think uh, to the likes of you know our golfing forebears you know, the skills that they had were, were phenomenal considering. And, you know, I guess, and I don't know, obviously, but from what I've read and what I've learned, you know, the conditions that they played golf in back then, 
uh, were far less curated than they are now. Uh, the conditions in bunkers, the conditions of rough and fairway, you know, like the, the modern day, uh, you know, greenkeeping equipment back then, Steve, as you probably know, were, were, were sheep on the golf yeah. courses in Scotland and, uh, and in some parts still are. Uh, up in Broar and that, that sort of part, parts of the world where they've got sheep that roam and, and do a lot of the grazing. So, you know, the conditions were far less conducive to um, beautiful shot making that we find ourselves in these days. So, yeah, Indeed. it's uh, different times. Indeed. And so, mate, look, your experience and knowledge in in seeing new equipment and things that come out, like I talk about, we'll talk about wedges because there's so many different uses for wedges in golf and there always has been in the in the shorter lofted shots and, and different ways of using getting out of trouble and things like that. Is there some of this tech and some of the, the, the design that goes into a wedge? Because I look at it and I hear this five or six different lofts for wedges and there's, you know, gap wedges and lob wedges and sandwiches and all these sort of pitching wedges and and but there's there's details. I'll take a sandwich and I'll talk about bounce on the sole of a sandwich on the on the underneath of a club to help the club go through the sand and come out of the sand, I I think is my take on it. What is some of the tech stuff that you know from the from the club manufacturers that that they put into these things. And do you know much about how they work and how it helps a golfer? Yeah, it's a good, good topic, Steve, because, you know, in talking to, you know, golfers of, you know, all different skill levels and all different courses that they play on, it is a very often asked question about wedges. And I like to sort of refer to it as wedgeology. Wedgeology. And, and I like that. <laughs> wedgeology. <laughs> and, and there's, there's a whole, there's probably three different key factors. You know, there is uh, the technology and the type of wedge and, and that there are differences there. Uh, as you mentioned, there are the, the loft configurations of the wedge system and it very much is a system when you start looking at all of those different loft configurations. So, you know, it's very, it's very rare or less frequent now that we have something that's the typical S, S wedge, yeah. you know, like yep. you can, you do still get them of course, but, you know, there are certainly more specialty wedges that's, that are available now. And and then there are the other sort of technical factors of what makes a wedge work for A, a particular player, or B, a particular player and a certain set of conditions. So uh, let's let's talk about that part. Sure. No, we'll go back to the start. Let's talk about, you know, the wedge, <laughs> the wedge system. Let's talk about the wedge system. Okay. You talked about lofts. You talked about lofts. So, yep. you know, Traditionally, a sand wedge was 54 degrees around that, that, that mark, 54 degrees. But then, then you had a pitching wedge at traditionally, say maybe 10 years ago, at about 47 degrees of loft. Right. So there's a bit of a gap in there, right? Yep. Yeah, you know, what is that, 47 to 54? You do the math, there's seven degrees of, um, of loft. Yep. So players started to realise that this gap was creating, you know, challenges in shot making yeah because let's say for you, for you steve a pitching wedge went 110 meters and your 54 degree sandwich went 70 meters so that's a big difference so they started making more loft options available and, okay um, so that's what happened and now we find ourselves with with modern technology in the golf clubs pitching wedges because the ball's flying so high with the tech that they put into it they're strengthening the loft pitching wedges are moving up to like 45 degrees and even even less in some categories so really yeah this whole wedge system 
and getting the loft gapping um, appropriate for the player is very important. So that's one area that, that people sort of still learning to get their, their knowledge around is, is what are all these different wedges? You know, we've got, you, you can pick any brand, Vokey, Cleveland, Callaway, Mac Daddy, all that sort all that sort of thing. They all do a wedge in their wedge systems from 46 degrees in that specialty shape through to through to 64 in many cases. So <laughs> really, I'd be worried about hitting a 64. I got a 60 and that goes high enough. I'd be worried about hitting myself in the head with a 64. 100%. 100%. And <laughs> so so it's really like understanding uh, getting the wedge system right is understanding where your game needs the support. Now, Support, as in for a, a typically a better player and a longer hitter, they're going to play more of their shots closer to the green, inside that 120 meter meter zone, where they want to have all of the options. You know, to reduce that, reduce that gap mitigation, mitigate those gaps, and really give themselves a, a shot, a club for every shot for most of the distances. So you would see a better player traditionally, and when you do the what's in the bags, if you like me, you like to look in what all the better players use in their bags. Yeah. You'll see they'll have maybe three three wedges, four wedges, including a pitching wedge. So they'll have more clubs down there. For someone yeah, who needs more, more help at the, with their long game and are going to play more shots in the longer part of the game, they might have they may have another fairway wood and maybe two two hybrids. So then, that, then with 14 clubs in the bag, they don't have room for that extra loft. Yeah, uh, okay. So they'll have a pitching wedge and a sand wedge. And maybe they might have a lob wedge at some point. But, yeah, that's the sort of structure of the system. So it's working out where your pitching wedge is, what type of you know, sort of shots you like to play and, and where you're going to get the benefit from having a different wedge system. And then, and then basically matching up the gaps. You know, like even gaps is usually a good place to start. So if your pitching wedge is 46 degrees, you know, which is the case in my bag, I will have a gap wedge at 50 degrees. And then I have a sand wedge or a, a, a 54 degree wedge, and you know I still I still refer to that as a sand wedge, but I, I very rarely actually play it out of the sand. And then I have my lob wedge, which is a 60 degree. Now I can play either a 58 or a 60. There's a little bit of difference in that two degrees of loft, but you know sometimes it just sets up different to the eye. So there, there's my system: a 50, a 54, and a 60. Some yeah, people okay. some people like that 52 degrees of of loft for a gap wedge, a 56 for that sand wedge. Yeah, the sand wedge becomes yet chipping club. Very important yep. around the greens, yep. chipping, and then they'll, they'll have a 60. So that's sort of wedge systems. Yeah, right. Uh, okay. And then the, the next part is you talked about technology. Now, when you look at like a Vokey wedge or a Cleveland wedge or a Mac Daddy wedge or, you know, anyone from that sort of area, you'll see that they look, a little bit more like a blade type club, and their and their basic premise of that wedge was developed in a while, ages ago. You know, um, I credit Roger Cleveland, the great Roger Cleveland, uh, for being the sort of gra- grandfather. He's, he's not a grand, you know, he's an old, older. He's a statesman of the industry. Call him the grandfather of wedges. You know, he he designed what I think was one of the first modern day shapes in a wedge. You know, that rounded toe you know, uh, blade-style wedge that, you know, just became very conducive for beautiful shot-making. And he basically, back in the late 80s, you know, he started to shape wedges, you know, putting wedges on the grinding machine and 
and really work with tour players, you know, better players, and giving them more options rather than just having one sandwich with a big flange and bounce on it. He had players that now were saying, well, Roger, can you take off a little bit of this uh, metal at the back here because I can feel it when I hit. So he was really one of the guys that started this wedgeology. I've I've actually had the pleasure and privilege to spend 18 holes of golf with Roger uh, down at Kingston Heath a number of years ago. And oh, Good, from- good. On your name drop people and golf courses. How good are you oh, going? Yeah. Everyone that <laughs> listens to my podcast know that I am always guaranteed for a name drop or a handicap drop. Um, <laughs> but no, but the, point, the point of me saying that is, you know, imagine having, you know, four hours on a golf course with Roger Cleveland, you know, that the the inspiration and the knowledge and the and the stuff that he was able to tell me just in, in having a round of golf was was Absolutely. Um, that's priceless, you know, mate. That's, money, that's, money can't buy. I was very lucky. But, um, that's incredible. Yeah, he, was, he started that sort of, you know, wedge, really bespoke wedge sort of, sort of making back then and making it for tour players, as I said. So, you know, this whole bounce, you know, when we talk about bounce and you mentioned that, you know, big flange on the back of a wedge, you know, my first specialty wedge was a Ben Hogan wedge. Um, got it in, in 1987 and it just had, the big bounce on the back. And yeah. that was basically all you could get. When they started making this modern shape, you had the big flange on the back. And, you know, if you've had an older set of clubs, a set of Wilsons or, you know, something from that 80s era, you'll, you'll remember a sandwich with a big bounce on the back. But you also, if you can see those sets of clubs now, you'll see them with wear marks on certain spots relative to the player that was using them. They usually be worn on a certain place. And yep. that's because, you know, people were, um, they had these big bounces that used to get worn. So what the manufacturers do now is, is give the player a whole range of bounce options. So you don't just have one choice of flange. You've got several choices of flange. And, and those flanges are therefore different in each of these lofts in the system. Your 50-degree right. gap wedge, Steve, is usually more for fuller shot club, fuller shots, full swing clubs because it's that 100-metre shot. So yep. they've, they've usually got a fairly limited range of bounces. So fairly standard 8 to 10 to 12 degree bounce. And it's a bounce that's designed to work through the turf as you make a divot and help push the club back through the turf. Yeah, right. So not, not, not as many options. But when you get into this sand wedge category, you know, 54 to 56 degree of loft, you know, either of those two lofts, you start to see a lot more bounce options coming into play. And, and back when I started on this little uh, ramp, you know, I said, type of course, type of player. And that's yep. usually what you're look, looking for to match the suitability for when you're fitting a wedge. And wedges definitely are a, a club in your bag that, you know, you can be fit for and should be fit for when you can. Um, but this bounce is certainly something that you're looking for and asking the questions about of the player, what type of, of wedge shots do you play? You know, uh, uh, show, me, show me your wedge shot. You know, show me your typical 60 meter, 70 meter wedge shot, and you just get a, an idea and a sense of how they hit, how they uh, hit the ball, how they interact with the turf. You know, are they a player that likes to take a big divot? Are they a player that likes to take a shallow divot? That has an impact on on what type of bounce might suit that player. Obviously, the bigger divot, the more turf interaction, the more that blade is going to work into the turf and work through the turf. So sometimes you need a little bit more support because. You don't want that leading edge to get caught up in the in the grass. You know, we don't always hit the ball first. We always sometimes, especially with wedges, get a bit of grass first. Yep. And we don't want that, that wedge to get caught and end up in a flub. 
So sometimes in that type of environment, you know, someone might need a, a, a bigger bounce, more bounce. But then if someone, you know, just takes a nice pick, pick off the ground, um, you know, they might need an option with less bounce, a little bit of a sharper leading edge. And you can get different grinds. You know, grinds is the other thing. You know, you can get a, you can get a grind with a, 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 and you see it. If you look at the bottom of a Vokey M grind, for example, you'll see it looks sharper towards the leading edge and then a bit of a knob, a bit of a flange still at the back. So, you know, they've ground, hand ground off that front bit to allow that person who likes to get that leading edge under the turf. Now, if we talk about turf interaction, which we sort of just mentioned a bit before, is if you're playing on a hard surface, hard surface, Steve, you've played on a few. Imagine yep, if you've I certainly a, have. <laughs> imagine if you've got a, one of these traditional wedges back with a big bounce. What happens? Oh, mate, it's it's ugly. You get the flyers and the driver height <laughs> blades coming off. It's uh, it's wicked. Exactly, because the, the wedge isn't allowed to interact with the turf in a way that gets that leading edge under the ball. So, you know, if you're trying to put a bit of loft on it and a bit of spin and open it up, you know, it just that knob on the back really hits the, um, hits the ground. And, you know, essentially the leading edge, and it's obviously hard to demonstrate in an audio, but the leading edge is sitting proud of the, proud of the turf and it's blading into the ball and if you know if you're a less than you know absolutely expert skilled wedge player sometimes that's difficult to to, to manipulate so you know this grind uh, is designed to help players pick grinds and bounce systems once again a system very much a system uh, to suit their, their type of play and type of shot and the type of conditions now when we talk about a system in wedge bounces and so we've not lost system. We're talking about bounce system. And I very much call it a system because sometimes, you know, not everyone has the benefit and the luxury like a tour player is to have a bag full of wedges and to have every bounce and every grind and every loft. And they can mm. just pick and choose from course to course, from distance to distance. We'll carry three. A better player might carry three. So they're going to play in softer sand. If they travel around a bit, they're going to play in firm sand. They're going to play full shots. They're going to play half shots. So they might want a system with their bounces to have one bounce that allows them a little bit more relief and forgiveness, so a bigger bounce, and then they might have one that has less bounce. Typically, that would be an example. You know, I'm just driving past the back end of some of the sandbelt courses now, and you mentioned the famous Mr. Suter and you know, his influence on, on Melbourne, the Melbourne golf landscape. For the sandbelt golfers will understand this. You know, what's, the, what's the consistency of the sandbelt, typical sandbelt bunker, Steve? What, how would you describe that? Oh, it's a, it's it's a quite a a loose, dry sort of sand. I would say if you go to Royal Melbourne, you've got a beautiful flat bottom bunker, you've got a hard wall, and the and the balls all settled to the towards this sort of flattish bottom bunker. Yeah, and, and under underneath that that first layer of of you know soft sand, it can be quite firm underneath. So the the top ah. is it's like a you'd almost say crusty. And, yeah, okay. and if, you go, if, you, if you go to um, Royal Melbourne or a lot of these sandbelt courses that have these, you know, beautiful, consistent bunkers, you know, flat at, flat at the bottom for the ball, comes to the bottom, it's firm underneath but soft on top. And if you, yeah, whack, yeah, gotcha. if, if you whack a big bounce, you know, you're trying to loft it up and get it over some of these high bunker walls and, uh, you know, get it to stop on some of the firmer greens, uh, if you've got a big bounce, if you try and lay that open, you're just going to blade it like we described before. So a lot of the, the sandbelt players will have a lower bounce on their lob wedge. 
allowing the club to slide under and cut through that crust and just pop up nice and soft and, and land. Now, some bunkers are very soft, you know, that big white beachy type sand. Yeah, the, I mean, uh, you know, we think about any new bunkers that have been constructed. It's really fluffy. It's almost like cake mix. It's just it, it swallows and consumes your, 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 your club that you're going to hit with. And, and you can feel when it really takes, oh, the club doesn't want to come back out so easily. Correct. So if you're playing in that type of condition, you know, let's call it that more beachy type consistency sand, um, you know, there's a lot of give under that and there's a lot of room to hit that inch under the ball. Well, yep. sometimes for your lob wedge, you might need a bigger more bounce or at least one club in your arsenal with more bounce and one club with less bounce. And, and really this fitting wedges around having that type of discussion without going on too much more about it, but having that type of discussion and helping people understand the shots and the conditions and where where they play those shots and conditions. And the last part, I guess, and I hope that sort of in a sort of ranty way answers the questions for a lot of people. And if anyone does have any more questions, please follow them through to you or follow them through to me and, and I'll do my best to, to, to help answer and if you want to ring me or whatever, no, no problems. But the last yeah. part that I mentioned about wedge fitting, um, you know, I think most of the listeners these days would be fairly au fait with the value of getting clubs fit and, and having length and having lie angle um, custom fit. Now, some people, depending on their action, are, you know, a degree upright, two degrees upright, or a degree flat, you know, whatever, maybe standard. But not always does that mean that your wedges are going to be the same lie angle, or maybe all of your wedges are the same lie angle. So we talked about the, the gap wedge being a, predominantly a full shot club. Now, some people might use it a little bit more for chipping and little chip and runs, but you're going to play that 100 metre shot for a, you know average golfer with a gap wedge of 50 degree. Yeah. Now, being, being that it's a, usually a full shot type club, you know, the, the swing action might be a little bit more relevant to the, 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 the golf club set. So if someone is a degree upright in their fit, you know, they're more likely to be, you know, that sort of lie angle for, for the full shot club, the 50 degree gap wedge. But once you get in, then in a fitting environment, get a, a player to start showing you their chipping action and their spunker action and, and what happens there with the, the 56 and the 60, well, what happens is sometimes, you know, like when you're playing a bunker shot, what do you do? You squirm around, you squat down, you know, your hands are a bit lower. You're trying to keep that, that uh, hosel shallow through through the sand, therefore a different lie angle. So, you know, I, I'd always encourage people to have a look at the lie angles of their, um, of their sand wedges uh, and, their, and their bunker clubs and their chipping clubs because sometimes that action is a little different. If you play full shots with all these clubs, you know you've got a diff- you've got a question then to answer, you know, because you can't have perfection. You can't have two degrees upright for one club and uh, one shot, and then change it to two degrees flat for a, a low-handed bunker shot. So you've really got to make some decisions around your set makeup and where you play these shots, and and at least you know be aware of it. So I quite often fit people that you know might have a one degree flat in their lob wedge, standard lie angle in their sand wedge, and then one degree up wedge upright in their um in their uh, uh, gap wedge. So, you know, this is all, all part of, you know, this bespoke nature of golf club fitting that we, you know, we've educated everyone to, to, to get access to now. And, um, yeah, but you remember the first part, you know, that old club, you know, that old sandwich. And, you know, if someone's got one and you want to go to your old sandwich from 1980s that you might have lying around, you might see it worn on the heel. And that's because someone's, you know, digging the heel into the sand. Now, back in those days, you know, bending... Bending lie angles was 
certainly not as common, not not as well known in a in a golf consumer sense. So imagine if that line angle was was correct, it might have allowed that player to play better better shots. Make so, a big so, difference to their game, totally. I hope that's made sense to you, Steve. In a in a sort of, I've tried to break Mate, it look, down into different parts. To to be honest, I was intently listening on because that, like I said, I said to you um, before and, and off air in terms of of this sort of topic that this would be a lesson for me because I don't know a lot about wedges and I'm intrigued by it because I'm, I'm going to be looking at new gear before too long for my clubs. And I've just been one of those people that buy a set, the S is on the club. That's the one that I use for the short shots. Now I am a Cleveland fan and I'm glad you brought up, was it, was it Roger? Cleveland? Yeah, well, yeah Roger um, Cleveland. So I mean, Roger, I, Roger Cleveland, just to, just to round off on that and I should, I'd be remiss of me and I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't mention it. So Roger Cleveland started Cleveland Golf, which many, many years ago he sold. Uh, he, right. sold to, he sold to the Japanese company Sumitomo Rubber Industries, which is the parent company for Shrixen. So Shrixen is oh. Zexio, Shrixen Irons and Cleveland Wedges and Putters. So Roger sold that business many years ago, but for the last 20-odd years, he's been Callaway's chief wedge and uh, forged iron designer. You know, so wow. if, you have, if you have a set of Callaways in your bag and uh, it's got the little R stamp of their forward set of Callaway irons and they've got R stamped on the on the hosel, uh, that's usually signifies that Roger Cleveland's, you know, been involved in the design of that process. So, wow. yeah, Roger, so the Mac Daddy wedges from Callaway, Roger's designed all of those. Um, the, the Phil Mickelson, the PM grind, he told me a very interesting story, which I'm happy to share. Sorry to interrupt. But... Um, Phil Mickelson, was, Phil Mickelson was using a, a Ping I2 wedge. You know the famous old Ping I2 log yeah, wedge? Which yeah, yeah, yeah. Many, 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 many pros, tour players used. Um, and, and, and Roger said, Phil, you know, why are you using this Ping wedge? You know, you're, you're our guy. And um, he said, well, Roger, <laughs> you know, when I lay it open and play, you know, shots that only Phil Mickelson likes to play, is when I hit it a little bit high on the toe, you know, I can feel, I can feel I'm not getting access to the grooves, and this has got this high toe. This ping I two has got this high toe. Yeah, it does. Uh, it did. It did. So, so Roger says, "Well, what if what if I can make you one that does that?" He says, "Yeah, for sure." So Roger <laughs> took two. Roger took two Mac Daddy wedges, took them back to his workshop in LA. So, um, Callaway's in Carlsbad, which is near San Diego. So he took them back to LA where he lives, cut cut one of them in half higher and cut one of them half lower and then welded them together so ostensibly made a really really high toe and then grounded on his grinder grounded into the shape that you saw and he drew he drew score lines across all of the, all of the face he says wow. what, if, what if what if we make a club with this high toe so the shape that you like and then put grooves all across the face and Phil went yeah I'll give that a go and he, he, he basically put the prototype and and that's what Basically gave birth to the the, the the PM grind that you can see in the Mac Daddy range, and, and it was basically from from that and, and Roger Roger made that. So he he is as I say, you know the the, the grand the grandfather of wedgeology. Um, he started with Cleveland in his own company, and then now has been and still does work for Callaway uh, in many respects um, on a global scale. Wow, what a great little story! I, I did not know that, but I, 
I love the personalities in golf, and this is what I love about golf. And it, it, it's some of this stuff is is invention. It's born out of a need for something, and and obviously it's from they test a lot of this stuff on tour with the pros and what they want that's unique to them. And like you said, and then they open it to the marketplace if it works. And then there's something there that that people can have access to. And the fact that someone like Roger Cleveland is still involved, uh, albeit with Callaway now, is is certainly a good thing to know. I've never. I've, I've always just gone to Cleveland, didn't know that they weren't his company anymore, didn't know that it was sold off to Strixon, didn't know they owned it. But the fact that, you know, you've got now, if people like his gear and his designs, they can go to Callaway and look at some of the stuff that he's been part of the design process of, uh, which is fantastic. And and it was, like I said, I was I was probably a little bit quieter because it was a lesson for me on on wedges and wedgeology, which I'm going to use in future conversations. I love that term. Um, yeah, just really understanding more about it. Like I said, I'm going to be looking at new gear soon. And to know the sorts of questions to ask and to know what I need to look for for my game. And I think that's important for, for the listeners out there for their game to know that there's more choice and there's things that can be catered to suit you better. And when you go to a place like a drum and golf, like your drum and golf store in Melbourne, if the listeners are in Melbourne, um, you can you can talk to the staff and and the pros in your local pro shop or wherever you're going to go for a fit out and look at your options and understand what they're used for and understand what questions to ask, most importantly, because you can only get the right answers to the questions that you're asking. Mate, thanks for that uh, insight. Like I said, I, I you know, really, um, really intrigued by the wedges and everything that goes on, mate. I'm going to jump now to a different subject. I want to pick your philosophical mind a little bit on golf, and this is a topic that's probably uh, certainly more prevalent in Sydney at the moment, um, but it has been, uh, I suppose, a factor in other states, in Melbourne and in Brisbane, uh, in not too uh, the distant past in the last couple of years. But I want to talk about public space and how golf courses are viewed by the non-golfing public and the thought behind how maybe golf could be incorporated a little bit better uh, or golf courses could be incorporated a little bit better into I suppose, modern day society. And by that, I mean, uh, there's a, there's a current situation in, in Sydney at the moment with Moore Park, which I've talked about Moore Park Golf Club in the past, uh, where Clover Moore, the, the mayor of Sydney city, it wants to cut Moore Park down to nine holes from 18 and use that space open for the general public as parkland so that they can walk it and, and use the space as dog walkers and picnics and whatever it might be. Um, now, there's a lot of upheaval from golfers in that area that uh, that are Moore Park players and fans and members, and, and it's a very, very busy golf course, one of the busiest in the country. Uh, there's a bit of pushback and that sort of thing from golf, but... I suppose the, the thing that I'm looking for of your opinion, being a, a well-versed golfer and certainly someone who's been around a lot and spoken to a lot of people, uh, what are your thoughts on something like that situation? I know Albert Park Golf Club in Melbourne has been under pressure in the past for something similar. They've done it in Brisbane uh, where they recently closed down Victoria Park Golf Club. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Is there, should, golf, should golf be chopped up and... Um, or close down to allow more parkland space for for use by the general public, or do you think golf can can integrate itself back to maybe some of its former um, 
uh, I suppose, ways of being where it was a bit more community-centred and a bit more community-minded. Is there ways that the public can, can access the golf courses as public space a little bit more where they're on public land um, as opposed to the, to the private ones? Should that be happening? Steve, it's a, it's a, it's an emotional topic for all of us golfers to even consider that. Right word, I love that. It is emotional. You're right. And I and I sit here and listen to you talk about it, and I can I can feel it in my heart, sort of well up about you know the thought of you know the, the two great cities in Australia, both cities which which I've lived in and now make Melbourne my home. But you know I'm a Hunter Valley boy, as you know, so I spent a lot of time in Sydney. And a lot of time in around that area that you refer to it in, in Moore Park. And, you know, to have two great cities that have the asset of a golf course in the shadows of the, the main city area is, is just such a wonderful thing. You know, there's not too many world cities that you can go to to, to, to get that sort of amenity as a golfer. And yeah. as a golfer, that, you know, that is one of the reasons why we – while we play golf, to travel and experience golf and to have access to golf, you know, in places where we make our homes. Now, the fact and reality is, is golf is a game which predates a lot of games, a lot of sport. You know, golf started in Scotland well before 1744, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's a historical game. It needs space to play. Now, to, to think that, you know, people want to take that amenity away from golfers, regardless of the location, is, is saddening. That's why I get emotional about it. To think that, that people can, who, who aren't interested in golf can just come along and decree that, you know, we don't want that for the exclusive use of you golfers. So we want it for the exclusive use of the, non, the non-golfers, as well as your golfers, but you're using it a different way. But that, that's quite challenging sort of for me to get my head around. You know, I'm just sitting here driving I'm at Brighton on the beach road, and I can see the city there and looking over the top of Albert Park. And it's just such a great thing to have that golf in the shadows of the city. Now, other sports don't take up as much space, but, you know, there are many other grounds and open areas that are dedicated for the sole use of sports, but therefore other people do get access to them when those sports aren't being played. So I, I sort of get that. But golf is golf is golf, and, you know, it's not the type of, you know, game that, you know, lends itself to having people walking around it. But neither, neither does, you know, six rugby league ovals, you know, on a Sunday from 8am in the morning till 4pm in the afternoon when, you know, every grade and every grade of kids are playing and taking exclusive use of that ground and training, you know, seven days a week, that sort of thing. So, you know, maybe that might upset the non-golfers, that sort of mentality. But I, I think golf and golf courses should be very much left as they are and, and applauded for, you know, what golf means to the community and what golf means to, to people. It's it's not a sport that's going away. No, it isn't. You know, and current current times tell us that golf golf is a safe sport and golf is a desirable sport. The amount of people that have come to golf in this 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 year alone as a COVID uh, year and um, you know realizing that golf is a great way for you know, to just get out and get some exercise and do some activity in a sporting sense with your friends, with your family, with people that you care about, people that you don't know, people with a chance to meet and connect with community. People have realised that that is golf is a absolute beautiful conduit for doing that. Um, 
you know, to, it's a safe sport to play. You know, it's obviously non-contact. You can do it in a way that, you know, you can be safe. That's really important. That's not going away. You know, we're not just going to switch this this year off and, and go back to, you know, normal normal. This is going to be with us for, forever. And and now, you know, the, the little sort of chatter in Melbourne is, you know, I'm just driving not far from Elftonwick where they closed uh, a public course. Closed the public course a couple of years ago. It's still sitting there as overgrown yeah, right. weeds. Yeah, so I had, they haven't they haven't turned it into into any you know wonderful public park. It's all actually fenced off. So Elftonwick, which is a lovely little community nine hole course, they closed it because this council decision. I don't know the whole machinations of why, but it's sitting there as, as weeds, and um, it's really sad to drive past that every day and see that. No. So mate, I I I do not support Clover Moor overdeveloping one part of that part of Sydney and then saying, well, we actually, you know, we put 100,000 more people into this area. We need to give them more open space because we've taken all the open space away by putting multi-high-rise developments in this area and taking all the revenue from that. And now we're going to take a golf course because, you know, these people need a, need a park to, to walk the Look. dog in. Now, in that particular area where you are, there there is no shortage of parks. You know, you've got Centennial Park, which abounds it. You've got the Sydney Football Trust area and the whole SCG area. It's parkland everywhere. There's, there's there. plenty of – you're right, but there's, there's stacks of parkland in that area. And I think because the – and I know that the, the grounds of Moore Park come under Centennial Parklands Trust, which I believe is a state-run um, body and, and Clovermore is – more part, uh, sorry, Clover Moore is the mayor of Sydney City, which don't run those lands, but she's pushing a case for it to be changed. Um, I see the golf course as the golf component for golfers out of all of Centennial Parklands. Her viewpoint is that golf, that 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 eighteen hole golf course, is for golfers and needs to be cut up to add to Centennial Parklands. I think she's got the wrong view of it here, and I, I think. To, like you said, the, the population increase with residential high rise and high density is insane at that that southern end of the CBD around Moore Park. So taking the cash on one hand from developers uh, to then plead the case that we need more open space, you've got 200 and something hectares of parkland. Like you said, on top of the SCG Trust, which owns all the sporting fields and the training fields and the, the cricket, pit, cricket fields and, and all that sort of stuff, also across the road, it seems like a strange argument, but then you get this emotive wave that you talked about being emotion from um, both sides, but I'm going to talk about it from the other side because that's where a lot of the pressure is coming from. We see in the papers here in Sydney about what happened at Northcote during down in Melbourne, Northcote Golf Club during the COVID lockdown because you had such an extended lockdown time down there that the public the golf course was closed because it, you weren't allowed to play golf. So therefore it was, it was closed to use by its, by anyone members and, and visitors alike, but locals that boarded that golf course cut a hole in the fence, if I'm not mistaken, and started using that open space as a park for them because previously golf was played on it and they weren't allowed in. No one's there. They've taken it upon themselves to just commandeer it. Yeah. Well, that was, um, that was a situation that obviously, made the news now i can't remember if if it was closed and it was closed for everyone or they they actually the council said well it's closed for golfers but you know you can use it as public open space so 
you know, you're free to go and walk, walk on it. I don't know if, what the case was, but what I do know what happened after that, and I think which has caused even more of a ruckus, that, you know, the, the local community has now then sort of taken it under, under their own steam to say, well, you know, I've got as much access to this land as you golfers, so, you know, I'm going to use it. And what happens, and I think that's when they cut the hole in the fence and then the situation a number of weeks ago was uh, people were having a picnic on the 8th fairway. And they just popped up stumps on the eighth fairway, and people were playing golf. People were playing golf, and and the poli- and the and the police got had to get involved because they and they didn't know what to do. And basically, they, they they the police had to then so public resources had to then come and stay there the whole day because the the people wouldn't move. They said, "Well, this is oh when I'm moving." And people were playing golf, and the, and you had to miss the eighth hole. The golfers had to walk the eighth no, hole. No, they didn't. Um. Yes, I did, um, for a family, because they chose to have plop up there and have a picnic and, and try and make a statement. Now, uh, I, you know, make, I don't know if they're making a statement. I don't know. But, you know, they might have just been unawares because of, you know, the previous three months they'd been allowed to, you know, walk on it. And, you know, some people saw golf courses and golf greens and bunkers for the first time. You know, you saw the pictures of kids playing, building sandcastles in bunkers and, and people walking on the greens going, wow, look at this grass. It's beautiful. Now, that was great that, that these all these guys got to see that and, and experience what golf is all about. But um, it's really hard to think that you know the golfers of that area, the, that community, would would then need to, to to give it up. And you know, it is a rating thing for the for the councils, but they're under immense pressure and it's it's political. Stephen, I don't want to be political. I'm not a political person. But it basically, and I'm sure it is in the case of Clovermore. It becomes a political statement. It becomes a vote-gaining statement, and you know it's as much about appeasing people to to gain favour with you know population. Oh, look, I, I don't doubt it, and and sadly that is usually at the heart of these things, uh, whether we like it or not. It, it usually is. I, I'm a on a I suppose on a personal front. When I was looking after Katoomba Golf Club, well, Katoomba Golf Course in the Blue Mountains, uh, we were trying to, I suppose, grow our um, stature and prominence in the area again as we were rebuilding the golf course and and uh, from a golf perspective. But one of the things I was looking for, and I think I'll break away from that, if, if, we, if we leave it up to people to do as they believe is right on their own, it often, more often than not, will turn into a mess. I think... It needs to be, I think, communication and education around it. Um, I'm a big believer in multi-use golf courses. Now, that's not for everything. That's not a blanket thing for golf because there's plenty of private golf courses out there that own the land. That's theirs. They can do with it as they choose. In And, and I don't think there's an issue with that. But there are, there are plenty of golf courses, and we were one at Katoomba that was on public land, and it's a leasehold. So the essence of it, it's not owned by the club. Uh, but they maintain it, they look after it, they care for it from safety perspectives and all that sort of stuff and the environment and all the, those things combined. I, I'm a big fan of the idea where appropriate, and it's usually in, in sort of suburbs that are broken away from the city centres or that, that are public access on, on community land um, or smaller townships where the golf course can again be um, integrated back into the community somehow. And, and that can be in very, many and very different ways. We were starting to introduce um, like a family fun day where we would have the golf course shut down from golf and we introduced, you know, we had market stalls and car shows and dodgem cars and some rides and things for kids and families to enjoy. The, and people were walking around all our paths. 
they were experiencing our our beautiful scenery and gardens, which we incorporated in the course, and they enjoyed the space that they would normally not be able to do playing golf because they weren't golfers. And we love that integration. It was about having a little bit of community buy-in where they could experience what we were maintaining on a different way. And then other days of the, of the week and in turn the year that they, they, if they wanted to play golf, they could. They could enjoy it at the clubhouse and have a coffee and look at it over the balcony. And then when we opened it up for different events and we were trying to incorporate events throughout the year, that they could walk the fairways again. They could see that space and enjoy. If you wanted to have a picnic, you could. But there were designated times for that. And I think you get this issue where the example you brought up where someone has a picnic in the fairway all day and people can't play golf from a safety perspective and then police are called. I just had a joke with my brother about a similar, the exact same concept. And he said, oh, what's going to happen if people want to use it when they feel like it? I'm going to play around someone having a picnic. I had no idea that that was an example that happened for you guys in Melbourne. It's it's laughable yeah. to to an extent, but if I throw you've got Scottish heritage, your parents are from have come over from from the British Isles from Scotland, emigrated to Australia. So, and you've experienced a lot of golf travel over there in in Scotland. They have a similar concept of public use, mixed use on their golf courses, and I'll I'll raise the old course at St Andrews. Uh, a lot of golfers know that on Sundays it's closed down. The history behind that I don't know a lot about. I'm not sure if you do either, but they do have it where it's no golf on Sunday and the public are allowed to roam the fairways. And if I go to the MCG, um, I often, I've been there and I've paid for the tour of the MCG because, you know, my wife's not a cricket fan, but she loved the walk of the history of the MCG. I think if it's open for that in, in St. Andrew's golf course in Scotland to walk it and you're not a golfer, you can appreciate the history and, and enjoy that space just the same. What are your thoughts on that sort of integration? So, you know, I might've sounded fairly direct before about, you know, leave the golf space alone for the golfers and, and don't take the golf space away. But, you know, the point that you raised is not lost on me and I absolutely support, you know, like golf is a beautiful, a beautiful game and it's played on beautiful grounds and, you know, for these guys in Northcote that saw golf courses for the first time, you know, that was intriguing. And I'm all for that concept of people seeing golf in a different light. And and the, the concept of shared and, and mixed use is not lost on me, but I think it can be done in a sustained and an appropriate way. You know, walking – and I can't remember the name of the architect. There's a young up-and-coming architect in the States that was faced with the challenge of developing, redeveloping some land of the golfers for, and it was like this sort of conversation um, with the community in mind. And there was a lot of community backlash around this topic. And, and he presented a integrated plan that incorporated the community. It incorporated some playing area, some public use area, picnicking area. It incorporated walking tracks and incorporated a golf course. And it was all open for everyone to use. And it was a wonderful design. And I can't remember the name and I'll find it and I'll, I'll work it out and I'll tell you. But that sort of concept is absolutely appropriate. Now, you know, Mornington Golf Course in COVID times let their let their course be used for public walking, and and now obviously it's not. But that area is is absolutely appropriate for having a walking track built on it. And whether the guys at Mornington do that or not, I don't know. But you you remember your example of Scotland? Yes, in Scotland they have this uh, rule, this law called a right to roam. Anyone has a right to roam on any any land, ostensibly. 
So you and I could go for a walk in the highlands and jump onto a farmer's property, walk over the fence, and many of the fences actually have uh, little crossing um, trundles built into them, so you can walk across it without catching yourself on the electric or the barbed fences or whatever, or stone walls in many cases. You can walk across it. And you can go walking for as far as you can see, and they can't do anything about it. No one can come out and say, get off my land. You have the right to roam. And that exists on golf courses as well. And you will see... Uh, you'll be playing North Berwick, you know, the St Andrews of East Lothian, the other side of the water, old course in the town, starts in the town, finishes in the town, and a lot of the holes run down by the water. And people are out walking on the edge of the, the dune that separates the golf course from wow. the beach and just having a walk around, just having a walk around with the dogs, saying good day to the golfers, saying good day to all of the American tourists playing golf. And it's wonderful. Awesome. And they stay out of the way. And, and it's it's not a... It's not a designated walking track, but yeah, it's sort of become that. And people can can do this, and they can and they know how to do it appropriately. So it's not well, we're going to set up and have a picnic because we've got a right to roam on the 18th green at um, you know North Berwick. But they can walk in and around. They can get access to the beach at a part of the beach where they want to get access to. They can walk the dogs. And they can do all of that, and it's it just adds another element. And you know, it's like playing golf with dogs is an acceptable acceptable thing over there you know most a lot of courses allow you to take members to take their dogs and walk walk the dogs while they play golf you know it's not really something that happens here but that's another thing that happens over there for the majority of places um but but not every course is is a public open space that you know you can go and have a picnic on they're still closed but you know these courses these older courses that run the links courses that run down the water certainly have this dual occupancy type thing where there's walking tracks and shared use and and it just seems to work no one sort of you know gets hit by a golf ball and sues anyone that's the other the other aspect in this litigious society that we've got you know they've got to manage that and everyone's scared of that but it just seems to work over there mate and you know there's signs everywhere saying you know golfers have right of way beware of the golfer if you get hit by a golf ball you know i don't know what the signs say but you know what i mean um that does work and your old course point I, I, I don't know the history myself either. I have a funny feeling that the origins of it relate back to, you know, sort of religious reasons, uh, you know, Sunday being the Sabbath and yep. all that sort of thing. I think that might be the, the origins. I could be wrong and I should know it and I don't. But really now the old course, which a lot of people don't fully appreciate and understand, is it's essentially run by – I use that word a lot, don't I? Um, <laughs> it's run by the council and St Andrews Links Trust, which is a, a, a government – uh, council body um, have several courses in St Andrews area. If you live in St Andrews, you can get access to a a links ticket. You know, it costs you sixty quid a year or a hundred quid a year, or it's ridiculously cheap. You then get access to all of the uh, the links trust courses, um, which includes the old course. So you know, you 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 can go and play on it as a local, and um, but on Sundays they close it off. And I was there in September last year and I took uh, my wife up there who um, didn't really fully appreciate being on the old course and walk, being able to walk up the 18th fairway and park near the 17th green, all that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, for me, it was it was busy as, you know, there were people everywhere just walking, playing, kicking a football. They're actually running tours. You know, there were guided tours around the old course and people taking taking people around showing where Tiger hit a shot from and where he sunk a putt from and, you know, when he had 20-odd under and all that sort of stuff. 
Um, and it was just a hive of activity. And it seems to work. It seems to work. You know, like the place is full of golfers all year and golfers come from all around and it's closed one day a week. It's crazy to think, but it's closed one day a week and it works it works Unbelievable. Really well. and, and I think from an Australian perspective, that one day a week that it's closed being Sunday is probably one of our busiest golf days of the week is um, for yeah. visitors and guests and of, uh, of clubs to go out for recreation and, and for their um, their hobby and, and play golf on a Sunday. Whereas, yeah, in, in St Andrews, it doesn't happen and everyone's okay with it. I think there is that historical part behind it. And it, it's probably just because it's been that way for so long that it just is that way. And that's how people are so used to it. I think if you brought it in a rule like that here, say at Moore Park, for example, where you could play Sundays, I think people would go bananas. The golfers would. They'd say, oh, I can't play on one of the days of the weekend that I have off. I, I don't know. But um, I find it interesting. It's always hard to bring in new rules like this, for example, to, to, to change we're, we're creatures of habit, so to change a habit, a habitual thing, um, is often brought with you know a big wall in front that people go, that's too hard to get over. Um, it doesn't matter which side of the argument you're on. I, I think there's, I still think there's merit to it. Like you say, it's not lost on you, and I don't think it's lost on golfers. But I think, I think we need to be. I think both sides of the argument in certain examples um, where it could be beneficial to to the entity at, at the heart of the, the discussion, uh, I think can can need to be more open-minded about how to go about it. So people can use that space if you're not a golfer in, in a way. And it's education. It's understanding that, you know, the bunkers aren't, you know, I suppose kids are going to build sandcastles. That's what kids do. But it's not a place to go and take a dirt bike. I've had that in the past at my golf course at Wentworth Falls. We used to have people go on the golf course with dirt bikes and use it as a, as a motocross track. Well, aren't golf courses the best natural motocross <laughs> tracks ever built? Absolutely. I suppose you can't um, argue with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, every, every motor, you know, I used to be in that industry as well. Every motocrosser that I know always used to dream about, you know, whooping up a berm on a, on a bunker uh, and, and double, doubling over a big tabletop, you know, green. So, um, but, I guess if, if you survey the golfers, I, I don't know, Steve, if you said to the guys who, you know, make a living and play their golf at Moore Park, if you said, hey, guys, you know, we've got to entertain a concept of integrating our 18 holes and changing to integrate for the community and whether that's building some walking tracks or losing some part of something, you know, for some public open space, but maintaining, you know, the, you know, the nub of the concept of the 18 holes, or lose lose nine holes, you know. I reckon they'd probably entertain, you know. And there was no other choice. I reckon they'd probably entertain the integration of some of that sort of public amenity. Uh, I would I would think I, I don't know, but I would think, and I, I reckon that wouldn't be that'd be a reasonable outcome in the face of losing it or or um, you know, or doing something different to maintain your eighteen holes. You know, like we've talked before about nine hole golf and par three golf and you know, that sort of thing. So, you know, it might not be perfect, but at some point, you know, there's, there's probably these discussions are going to not go away. No, that's true. They're not going away. And, um, you know, the parties are going to have to, uh, going to have to agree to, to move on, you know, and, and for the golfers, if they don't like that, well then, you know, there are plenty of, I'm sure, I'm sure there are plenty of golf opportunities that they can 
seek around. But, you know, I think for me, if golf stays in the shadow of that, that big city and stays at a, at a full capacity to allow the people to enjoy golf as an 18-hole game, it is an 18-hole game, two nine-hole games, you know, whatever. It's a facility that allows the volume of golfers to play golf and, and cater for the volume and not restrict the volume. That's my yeah. point. Um, that, that's, that's, what, that's what my point is. That's what I think needs to be maintained. Yeah, yeah. no, I, 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 do, uh, I do agree with you on that part. If the, if the volume is there, then clearly it's, it's a difficult argument, surely, to suggest that um, we need to do away with part of the golf course when it, it's, it's commonly known that Moore Park is one of the busiest golf courses in the country. So um, I think there are other examples that it could be done in integrating with the general public, but I don't know that that's the right one being next to Centennial Parklands as it is and the SCG Trust Parks and uh, Sporting Field. So, but, mate, look, as always, I, I love talking philosophically about the game with you and, and some of the things that are current in the wave of golf. Mate, thank you very much for, for joining me again on the podcast for different discussions. And, and if you – like we started off with saying, if, you, if you're interested in some of Ross's other podcast work, but my love of golf um, – mental mastery or golf rules questions uh please go and listen to them uh search your favorite podcast app for them um i'll have up some links as well you can click onto uh on some of my postings and also of course information about wedgeology uh with with uh through ross and and the drum and golf store and in melbourne so in uh, feel free to go and have a look at the shop it's a wonderful store like i said i've been there i think it's one of the best going around and um all the staff and ross are all too happy to help you with wedgeology whichever way you might be looking to um to improve your game so thank you roscoe really appreciate your time again on the podcast and look forward to it next time stevie keep up the good work mate well done you're having a crack and uh and we love that. Um, you know, that's what we're all trying to do to yeah, bring this information to people and uh, our thoughts. And, you know, it's uh, really powerful stuff that you can do and uh, you're doing a good job. Wonderful. Mate. Thanks, mate. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a wrap for episode number 12 of the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast. Now, There's probably a little bit more food for thought out of today's podcast, hopefully for you, talking to Roscoe. Look, the the wedges stuff I'm really interested in. Like I said, I'm going to be looking at some new gear soon. So I don't understand a lot of that. And a lot of that's new information to me to try and learn what questions to ask when I'm looking at those sorts of clubs. Um, Very, I, I found it quite fascinating. I hope you did too. Something a little bit different. I don't do a lot of golf equipment things, but... It affects how you play your golf courses and with different grasses and different, you know, golf courses out there to play in different conditions and they're all different. uh, Sometimes it will have an effect, as you heard from Roscoe, how the different types of sands, for example, in bunkers and courses that you play and different soil types and how they interact with those surfaces. So something hopefully there that um, was interesting for you. The stuff about Moore Park, look, you know, it's, it's topical. It, it's topical. Everyone's talking about it at the moment. And uh, I'll let you in on something that I'm currently working on, and that is I'm working on uh, a piece about Moore Park. So I'm just still getting more information and, and researching as much as I can because I, I think Moore Park has a history there that I want to bring out, and not a lot of people know about it. Every golf course has history, but I think Moore Park is, is, is quite interesting in the city of Sydney uh, where it sits, and certainly in public golf as well. You know, and and like I said, I'm a fan of 
of multi-use space and and um, having it a bit more accessible, certainly when it's on public land and making it a bit more community-centred. Uh, that doesn't mean you can have dodging cars out in the middle of the fairway while people are playing golf. It just means that we need to understand how different types of people can use that land at different times. And, and um, I still think that Moore Park is probably not the best example for wanting to adjust its its land use because it's so popular, so busy, and uh, incredibly well patronised by a lot of people around Sydney. And in that area, it's uh, there's not a lot of public access golf at all, really, to be honest. Uh, most of them are exclusive private clubs, and I think that's what's being lost about in conversation when we talk about reducing Moore Park down, is that there isn't really 18 holes that's open to public and open to people who are beginners in the game and you know people who who want to learn the game or pick up the game or or it's it's inviting for them to come and learn the game and i think that's what moore park does so very very well and in the cent in the city itself right in the heart of the city to have uh, an 18 hole complex um that's accessible to anyone to walk up to learn the game to play the game to enjoy the game i think is important and and i really think that uh that that argument shouldn't be lost and i think it's 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 land space in the overall Centennial Parklands area, I think, is the fact that it's the golf component of those parklands. There's tennis courts, there's basketball courts, there's rugby league fields, there's AFL fields, there's cricket ovals, there's a- athletic tracks. There's so many different sporting parts of Moore Park and Centennial Parklands. And Moore Park is the sporting area or sporting arm of Centennial Parklands, if you like, um, that I think the golf course component is the golf sporting part of those parklands. And I think we're looking at it in reverse, effectively. I think it's being viewed at in reverse by those that aren't golfers. And I I ask you that if you're not a golfer or if you know someone who's not a golfer to to consider going visiting Moore Park and you'll see just what it's all about. And uh, I think we need to look at it as that's the golf space for for the the sport of golf in Centennial Parklands because so many sports have space and that's just the golf space that's been allocated. And I think it it should ret- should be retained. That's my opinion. That's my view. Um, but like I said, working on something to bring out the history of Moore Park and just what Moore Park is to Sydney. Um, and I'll let you in on that little secret. But thank you again for listening to episode number 12. As always, I hope you got something out of it. It's piqued your interest. It's made a topic of discussion. Talk to me on social media send me a message, whatever, happy to discuss, talk, catch up. I don't don't mind, don't care, really interested in it and love talking about anything that I had on the podcast today. And also, please leave a review for the podcast as well. Pass it on to your friends, to your family, get more people to listen to it because the more you get to listen to it, the more I love doing it as well and the more that it gets shared around. So really thankful to everyone for listening and sharing it around. That's episode number 12, guys. Merry Christmas and a happy new year. Travel safe. Be kind to everyone, be safe with the world of COVID and above all, enjoy the holiday period, whether you're playing golf or you're not playing golf, but if you are, I'm sure you'll absolutely have a ball. I'm Steve Smith, the golfing grain keeper. You hit them clean and we'll keep them green. Enjoy, guys.